All right, tonight we're going to be looking at Matthew 5. Probably there this week and next week both. And um, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, as we said uh, a week or two back, we've we've moved out of the Beatitudes, what is formerly known as the Beatitudes, and moved into just the the unpacking of those. The Beatitudes tell us what, uh, what kind of character that Christ expects from us, and then moving forward, uh, he's telling us what that character translates into, what it, what it, how it's applied to our lives, how we act because of the character that we now have. And um, as we get into this section, I thought it would be interesting to uh, share something with you. Um, articles of faith from our church. Very first article of faith um, says the following. We believe that the Holy Bible, the canon of 66 books widely recognized to be complete since the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D., was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and that it therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. That's the first article of our Articles of Faith uh, here at, at Crabapple. As we adopted uh, just three years ago, we overhauled our bylaws, and um, our Articles of Faith come from um, 18... 33 New Hampshire Confession. For those of you that don't know, Baptists are confessional people. We express what we believe. And um, the articles of faith that we adopted came from the 1833 New Hampshire, New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Now, this confession of faith became the foundation for the Baptist faith and message. Okay, so I'm not very good at drawing this tree, but um, actually, let's see if I can do this right. Let me just move differently. Backing up to 1689, you have what was the um, the second. London Confession of Faith. Obviously, it was in Britain. Uh, this is the Confession of Faith that um, Charles Spurgeon's church uh, adopted and held to. Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. And, and this is the Mac Daddy, okay? This one right here. This is. Um, this is where most all confessions of faith have sprung from, at least in the modern modern times. Uh, very sound, very uh, heavy on the scriptures, what scriptures teach, what scriptures believe. The, the London Confession, the second London Confession of Faith, gave way in America to the Philadelphia Confession. 
Basically, it was the same except for a couple of paragraphs, a couple of articles that were added, one about laying on of hands and one about singing songs, psalms and songs and spiritual songs uh, was an addition to this, so that was the only difference. This then became the father of this and also of the Charleston Confession. And also the um, abstract principles. The abstract principles became is kind of a summary statement of beliefs. So it became kind of a, a condensed version, a summary statement. And these abstract principles were uh, first adopted at the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And Crabapple First Baptist Church when it was founded, was founded upon abstract principles. Not all of them. It was a condensed version, an abstract of the abstract principles, okay? But historically, and it's in the minutes of our church, going back into the 1890s, that this was the original confession of faith of this church, okay? So when we went to bring in... Um, we didn't really have our bylaws confessed. I mean, the old Constitution didn't really have that in there. It kind of maybe, I don't remember, Don, you may remember, James left, uh, James may remember that our old Constitution may have alluded to the Baptist faith and message uh, in some fashion or form. But when we redid our bylaws and we said we wanted to state our articles of faith, confessional people, as a part of our bylaws. So, because what happens, a lot of churches make them different from one another. They make a constitution over here, they make their bylaws over here, they got the Bible here, and never shall the three meet, you know? Uh, we feel like that if you're gonna have a governing system and you're gonna be a confessional people, that those things ought to travel together, they ought to be yoked together. So if you're gonna change something, you gotta go through the process of changing. Why change man-made documents that, that we have initiated through rigorous processes while the, the Articles of Confession can be easily laid aside by just anybody coming and going. And that's what happened. Basically, the church through the years laid aside its confessional roots. And, and so when we decided to redo the bylaws, we said we're going to go back and look at what we need to have in there as our confessional statement. Um, the Baptist Faith and Message has a 2000 version. You know, you may remember uh, I said this was the father of the Baptist Faith and Message. The 1924 edition. Then there was a 1963 edition, and now there's a 2000 edition. And what happens with all these confessions of faith is that every one of them gets diluted from the other, right? Every time you take a step down, somebody wants to change something. All right, well, let's change this. You know, times are changing. We need to be more with it. So, and that's basically what happens. Uh, so we went back to the New Hampshire Confession because it was the foundation from which our Baptist Confessions came, okay? And probably, if I'd have been a little bit more persistent, we might have gone back to this one, okay? But, but it's pretty extensive, and we wanted something that was more practical, more usable, so... This was a nice middle-of-the-road place to land 
the New Hampshire Confession. But I say all that to say we have a confession of faith. We're a confessional people. We state what we believe. And the first thing out of the gate is that we believe in the Holy Scriptures. We believe that they're from God. We believe that they were given to us by men supernaturally inspired by God. So it wasn't somebody just sat down and started writing and dreamed this up. You know, it stood the test of time, all these things. So we know, we make a big deal out of this because we want to know what we believe, right? That's important. If you don't know, someone once said, if you don't know what you believe, you'll fall for anything. And that's basically what's going on in modern Christianity today. And so the abstract principles are a part of our original, I mean, you find it in the minutes. Um, this church was practicing church discipline every time it met. Um, you know, some people looked at, at the, um, the bylaws and the articles of faith and they said, whoa, what are we doing here? We're getting carried away. And we said, we're returning to our roots. We're going back to who we were in the beginning as a church, who the founders of this church set out to be, that we've lost sight of those things through the years. So we're trying to return to those things because these things are important. Uh, the Baptist Confession of Faith is much more extensive than any of these and, um, and very explicit about what it teaches about Scripture. I'll just read a few lines. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving faith, knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore the Lord is pleased at different times in various ways to reveal Himself and declare His will to His church, to preserve and propagate the truth better, and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. And the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. <clears throat> I.e. through verbal uh, through the prophets and, and teachers. Now, uh, one of the things that I like most about the, the New Hampshire Confession, and, and really this one too, is that everything that's stated, every article, there are countless places that are referenced in the Scripture where there's context, there's, there's validation. It says this is where it's found in the Scripture. So we said we're a people of the Bible. We, we want to be a people of the Bible. That has been true from, from as long as, as God has been giving revelation. We've been committed to that, that that's the only thing that stands the test of time. And so we want to preserve that. We want to teach that. We want to rest in that. And if that ends up being wrong, then so be it. I'll be wrong with God rather than be right with the rest of the world. Okay? That makes sense? Now, I'm saying all that to say that what we're looking at tonight in, in Matthew is that we're looking at what, uh, it's an interesting question. What does Jesus believe about the kingdom? We've been talking about that, but what does Jesus believe about the Scriptures? Does He have a belief about the Scriptures? And this passage begins to unpack that for us. It begins to tell us what He believes. When people check out our church, we want them to know, well, this is what you need to know about us. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And we're going to make our decisions, how we do our business, we're going to, our mission statement, the functions of our church, all those things are going to be tethered back to the Word of God. 
And, and if we don't find that what we're doing is biblically sound, then we're not going to do it anymore because uh, we think it's that important. And what Jesus tells us right here in, this, in these verses of Scripture is that He thinks the Scripture is important. And that ought to be something, right? We shouldn't believe any less than Jesus did, right? Be my opinion. So anyway, we look at uh, verse 17, chapter 5. Let's read these together, and then we'll set about trying to unpack them together and see what we can learn. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of, scribes, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus believe about the kingdom and about the scripture? John MacArthur said this. He said, Jesus' meekness, humility, gentleness, love, and love marked him out in great contrast to the proud, selfish, and arrogant scribes. Pharisees, Sadducees, and priests. His call to repentance and his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom made people listen, even if they did not understand or agree. They wondered if he was just another prophet, a special prophet, or a false prophet. They wondered if he was a political or military revolutionary who might be the Messiah they anxiously awaited, or who, uh, who could break or who would break the yoke of Rome. He did not talk or act like anyone else they had ever heard or seen. He did not identify himself with any of the scribal schools or with any of the sects or movements of the time. Nor did he identify himself with Herod or with Rome. Instead, Jesus openly and lovingly identified himself with the outcast, the sick, the sinful, and the needy of every sort. He proclaimed grace and dispensed mercy, whereas all the other rabbis and righteous leaders talked only about the religious externals. He taught about the heart. They focused on ceremonies, rituals, and outward acts of every kind, whereas he focused on the heart. They set themselves above other men and demanded their service, while he set himself below other men and became their servant. It's a pretty um, outstanding description, I think, of who Jesus is. So, thinking about Jesus as Messiah, as Messiah, if you were to take a poll of, of the people of Jesus' day, the Jews of Jesus' day, I mean, the thing that was predominantly upon their mind is they're looking and waiting and, and expecting the Messiah to come, right? This has been going on for hundreds of years. Longing for the Messiah. Is He coming? When is He coming? And some today are still looking and waiting for Him to come, right? They don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. So there were a couple of things that would be on their mind in that matter. The Mosaic Law was very important to them. It's hugely important. Their whole lives revolved around it. So thinking about the Messiah, did the, what did the Messiah think about their law? What did the Messiah think about their rabbinical law? 
How was he going to respond, react to that? And what did he think about, the, about Moses and the prophets? You know, what would he say about those things? They actually kind of expected him to be radically different in some ways and to speak out against or to turn some of those things upside down. So you think that expectation that they're thinking, okay, if a guy shows up and he's the Messiah, he's going to take some issues with some of these things. He's going to want to put his own fingerprint on what, who we are as a people. He's going to prove himself and he's going to change things. And Jesus comes out and he's telling them about kingdom life and he pauses here and he says, by the way, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What? This guy, you people are claiming this guy's Messiah. You're saying he doesn't have any program. He doesn't have anything new. He's just going to replicate what's always been there. I mean, what kind of leadership is this? I mean, it, you get that, right? They're looking for something new and different and improved. And he's saying, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to, I came to fulfill it. So it's an interesting setting here. And we know that if Jesus is speaking this way, these kind of people are in the audience. They're listening. He has their ear. And so he's beginning to share with them who he is, what he's about, what the kingdom's about, and how it ties back to the Old Testament. This is something that hopefully, if you've been here in this church at any length of time, you have an appreciation that we don't see the Old Testament and the New Testament as being separate entities. Now, what do I mean by that? Somebody unpack that for us. The pastor says they're not separate entities, but they clearly are. Prophecy of the covenant. Old Testament, New Testament, what if any relationship exists between the two. Old Testament talks a lot about Jesus. New Testament talks like about Jesus' walk and like the letters are like how to be more Christ-like. Yeah, I mean, what you find here that, that God's character is being revealed, his character, his expectations. We're finding out about sin and its consequences. But these are not two separate entities. It's the same story that's unfolding. God's people is running all the way through this thing. God and God's people it's the storyline. There's a little statement that goes with that too. I think the Old Testament and, uh, is in the, the New Testament, and it's contained in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament and New Testament is explained. Right. Yeah. Adrian Rogers used to say the New Testament uh, is concealed in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward. To what? Christ. Now, 
there are people that will say, what, you telling me that the book of Numbers, you know, have you read Numbers lately, that that's pointing forward? Absolutely. What do you think the message is of the scorpions and the, and the bronze uh, pole with the serpent on it out in the wilderness? What's that story about if it's not pointing forward toward Christ? Um, the Ten Commandments, well, yeah, you got, you got the law of God, the covenant of God in, in Exodus. God brings his people out of bondage. He brings them out from the world, which Egypt symbolizes, and he's taking them to a land. He's taking them to a country, an eternal abode with him. Jesus said, you know, in, in John chapter 14, I'm going away. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, I'm coming to get you, okay? The promised land, the Canaan, the, the, the promise that God has made to us is future. The eschatological look forward into what God has promised. The, the story over there in Exodus is just an you know, unfolding of that drama. Was it real? Yeah, historically it was real. But it was also pointing forward to Christ. We come out of that story with, with the deliverance of God's people so that they could what? Worship. worship Him. Go and worship Him without being oppressed, without being in bondage. Well, you know, we're working through our lives right now. We're on a pilgrimage, on a journey, and God has saved us, emancipated us, and he's working out that salvation so that one day we'll be able to gather around the throne in this place that Christ has made, our new home, our promised land, and worship him without any sin, tears, darkness, ever to interfere again in perfect spirit and Forever. truth. Forever. So you see the similarities. You come out of Egypt and you've got the Passover. What does the Passover point toward? It points toward the Lord's Supper, does it not? They, they took the elements there and, and we... So all through this, you know, if you look in Leviticus... I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to be lost in a minute. Uh, if you go to Leviticus, nobody wants to spend any time in Leviticus, do you? <laughs> Anybody like reading? You do your quiet time in Leviticus every morning? Anybody? Any takers? How many of you have read the book of Leviticus? Okay, good. Good for you. It's not an easy read, is it? You know? So what does this book tell us? Why is it in the Bible? Well, it's talking about, it's talking about uh, sin, sin's horribleness, And God's mercy is it's talking about the sacrificial law and what God is doing. He's, he's portraying this picture, the animal sacrifice, all the, the blood, the killing. You know, one of the things that's uh, most uh, intriguing about the sacrificial aspect of things, you know, someone committed sin and and in order to get forgiveness, you didn't just say, oh, sorry, God, forgive me. In order to get forgiveness, you had to go to the temple. You had to go to the priest. And you had to take a sacrifice. You had something had to die because of your sin. And, and I used to think, I used to think that, you know, you went, you took your lamb, you turned it over to the priest, and you went over and stood for him to go and, and kill the animal and bring back the blood and sprinkle it on you. But... That's not exactly what happens. 
what happens, and Leviticus tells us this, is that you bring your lamb to the priest and you confess your sin to God and you take the knife and kill the lamb. You have to do it. That's a big difference to say it's me doing the killing and not offloading that to someone else to do as a surrogate for me. I have to kill. Every time I have to come back and kill the lamb and kill the lamb. And over and over Leviticus is telling us about this horrible stuff called sin and its impact upon us and the cost for God's mercy. And it's all pointing toward Christ. The final, Hebrews tells us he is the once for all sacrifice, right? That he went to the cross to die. So what went on in Leviticus is no longer necessary as such. We don't have to practice the sacrificial law anymore because Christ has completely fulfilled what Leviticus laid out for us. So you see how this works. The Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ who is coming. The New Testament is revealing what Christ has done for us, who he is, and in him we're seeing the correlation. We're seeing, you know, I've heard these people talk about unhooking the Old Testament from the New. If you do that, all you've got is a perversion. The New Testament makes no sense without the Old Testament. That's one of the most irresponsible statements that's ever been made by any man who calls himself a preacher. Most irresponsible and damning statement that you can make is to say that the Old Testament doesn't have a place in the Scripture. That's like trying to say you can crucify Christ with no cross. You just can't do it. Jerry, yes, sir. Um, when we were in synagogue, Brett used that to help explain to one of the Muslims about the shedding of blood. They had that sacrifice every every year where they sacrificed them. And he was explaining it by any time. It caught my ear when he said, he said, basically, death is a consequence of sin and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And it was like, you could see the Muslim's mind just like, whoa. Yeah. Right. And, and so we look at this and we go, you know, I don't want to talk about that stuff. It makes me a little bit creeped out by this. It should. That's why it's in there. It should make us have a sense of awe and devastation over what our sin has caused. And moving forward, what it cost for Christ to go to the cross. It should. That's what it's intention to do. This is not, you know, a, a bleached out Bible story. It's in living color. And God is sharing with us the full consequences of all that goes on. So the sacrificial system can appear to be very repetitive, redundant, and, oh, can't we just get away from it? But every time that you see the description of this sin or that sin and the price that's to be paid, it's a reminder of this incredible cost for our sin because our God is a holy God. And I left that one out, didn't I? God's holiness is front and center. Sin's horribleness and God's mercy to be able to bring us sinners into relationship with Him in spite of what we have done. 
Okay, I don't know where I'm at. I told you I'd be lost. We've I'm off I'm off the reservation here. Well, let's see if we can get it back on the tracks. Uh, so we find in our text what Jesus thought and believed about Scripture. He makes clear that His authority and the Scripture's authority are the same. He makes clear His authority and the Scripture's authority are the same. His truth and the Scripture's truth are identical and inseparable. Jesus was radically different from other religious leaders. He had a high regard for the law, yet taught things contrary to many of the traditions that they practiced. Okay? So... There are four things. Each of these verses represents something else uh, about this discussion on the Scripture that I think is important for us to talk about. The first one, in verse 17, we find out about the superiority of Scripture. The superiority of Scripture. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's clearly talking to us about how superior the preeminence of the Word, of, of God's Word, of the Scripture the article that he uses here, the, the law, distinguishes it from other kinds of laws or other laws. It's not just any kind of law, but the law. The law, he's using this phrase, this statement, to point to it being God's law. So God is the author. God is the provider of the scripture, of this law that Jesus is talking about. In Jesus' day... Uh, people spoke about the law primarily in four ways. They would refer to the Ten Commandments, or they would talk about the Pentateuch. Which, what's the Pentateuch? The first five books. Okay, the books written by Moses, most people think. And that some people would say, well, that's the law. Some people would say, well, no, the law is the Ten Commandments. Other people would say, well, no, it's the entire Scripture, the entire uh, Old Testament. They call it Pentateuch because it's five. That's right. But by including the entirety of the rabbinical and scribal traditions and interpretations for some people, it meant not only these things, because what the scribes and Pharisees did, most people understood that it's impossible to keep the law. You know, you do the Ten Commandments. I may be familiar with Ray uh, Comfort. Ray Comfort is uh, great. He's an open-air evangelist out in California. He's Australian by birth, I think, or New Zealand from New Zealand maybe. Um, but he's, he's got this incredible sense of humor. But he is a creative guy that goes to the parks in Los Angeles and he preaches the gospel to people. What's his name? Ray Comfort. And you can you could Google him and you can find tapes and things that he's done. And you can learn a lot about how to share your faith in a creative way with people. He makes tracks. They're funny, but they're also effective. But one of the ways, one of his primary ways of sharing the gospel is to d- use the law. He will say, can I give you a good test? You know, most people say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Well, he says, okay, well, how good are you? You know, can I ask you, have you ever told a lie? I mean, ever. Have you ever told a lie? Well, most of us have to say, what? Yeah, Yeah, okay, yeah, I told a lie. Well, what does that make you? A sinner makes you what else? Imperfect, what else? A liar, okay? Listen, have you ever uh, taken anything that didn't belong to you? Most of us have done that, haven't we? Whether it's a pencil or a piece of chewing gum, we took from work uh, something that didn't belong to us. We didn't completely fulfill our obligations to our employer. We took an extra 30 minutes at lunch or something. So we, 
so what happens there? What are you if you've done that? A thief, okay? Have you ever had impure thoughts about another man or woman that's not your wife? Hardly anybody could, could disavow that one, right? So he will say, look, we've talked about three commandments in the Ten Commandments, and we've already discovered that you're a lying thief and an adulterer. So how good are you? Not very good, are we? So his point is that he's proving that the law is what shows us our need for, for God's forgiveness, that we can't have a relationship with him when we have this sin. And that's the purpose of the law is that it exposes us. It is the x-ray machine that looks inside of our well-kept external and shows us the reality of who we are on the inside. And, and we are perverted. We're abominable before God. And we need forgiveness. Okay? So this is the law. The, the scribes and the Pharisees understand that you can't keep the law. No, it seems in the reverse, doesn't it, when you look at the way they go about things. They're legalists, you know, to the nth degree. But here's what they did. They took the law that says, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. What does that mean? Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't do anything. Don't do... <laughs> well, does it mean that? I think... What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Say it again. Yeah, so so what is the Sabbath about? Is it about not doing work? It's about God. It's about God, which makes it about what? Holiness. In here. The attitude of the heart should be pointed upward toward God. The Sabbath was about withdrawing from all of the distractions of everyday life, all the endeavors of providing and provision for your for your family and all those things in order that you could focus upon the holiness of God and give him worship. But the Pharisees and the scribes looked at this and said, yeah, well, you know, we can't quantify that. So we got to come up with a system. And so that's when they started coming up with the system. Can't do this work. You can work, but you can't do but so much work. You know, you can walk is considered work. If you exceed... 2,000 steps, say. I don't know. It's something like that. So they would, put, they would put a quantity on it, and so you would know how far you could go and how far you couldn't go. Now, I ask you, is that holiness or is that legalism? Legalism. That's legalism. That's not a focus on the holy. That's not keeping the Sabbath holy, is it? doesn't matter if you only walk 1,900 steps. If you only walk 10 steps and you're going... I only walked 10. I got 1,990 steps that I didn't use today. Look how much more I'm keeping the Sabbath than you are. Okay, well, how about cooking? How about the ladies? Well, they cooked their meals on the day before the Sabbath, so they didn't have to cook on the Sabbath. But they could still eat on the Sabbath. Our stove has a Sabbath mode. Yeah. Yeah. But let me tell you how this, how this worked even more, though. Okay, so... Let's say that you get not 2,000 steps, but 2,000 meters. You can go 2,000 meters from your house, okay? So what they would do is that you could walk 2,000, you could walk 1,000 meters and then 1,000 meters back, right? 
That's your limit. If you go more than that, you've broken the Sabbath. So what they would do is they would take a rope and tie it to something inside the house and tie it to them, which extended their living quarters by the length of the rope. So if my rope is 100 meters, I can now go 1,050 meters before coming back, and I haven't broken the Sabbath. What kind of perverted mind comes up with this kind of stuff? You know, so they're not, they're not a friend to the law, are they? They're manipulating the law for themselves. So they, they've got this system of, I've achieved certain things, and you haven't, okay? This is what went on with the law. And so you get all these, everything. They scoured the scriptures looking for regulations, regulatory inferences in the scripture that they could then expand with all of these kind of minute additions. All right? So you've got this vast array of things that's called the rabbinical law that people had to know and abide by. It wasn't just keeping the Ten Commandments. God, God wrote them on two stone tablets. They had scrolls with these things written on them. And they had to know them frontwards and backwards. And they were constantly watching to see who obeyed and who didn't. Jesus makes clear here that he's speaking specifically about the law of God, the law God gave, not all these other things that these guys have concocted and come up with. Yes, sir? But that kind of rolls right into Ecclesiastes, right? There was nothing new under the sun. Still trying to get around the laws, he says. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I mean, I don't know how much we... We don't focus much on those things. You know, people will say, well, you can't do this. You know, uh, okay, you shouldn't go... You shouldn't work on Sunday. How many of you kind of feel guilty if you do something on Sunday, like out in your yard, or you go pull some weeds? Do you ever feel guilty about that? Mm -hmm. I do. I'm like, oh, I'm going to hell for this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where does that come from? God made the Sabbath, and, and we don't even practice the Sabbath, right? We're beyond that. Because why? Because Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. Jesus has fulfilled that law, and we're no longer bound to that law. Now, there are some things in the Old Testament we still function by, moral laws, but other things like, like the sacrificial law, that Jesus perfectly fulfilled those, and our faith and our rest in him keeps us from having to worry about doing those things so um and that this i was telling some guys earlier that these three or four verses are among some of the hardest in all of scripture because of you have to figure out what does fulfill me when it says that jesus said i came to fulfill the law well, what does that mean exactly okay and so i want to unpack that a little bit before we get out of here tonight uh let's see lost again uh, the, law, the phrase the law and the prophets was understood to refer to the Jewish scriptures so this clearly did not include the rabbinical interpretations and such so because it is the law of God Jesus is saying it's superior to everything else it's superior to all these other things that we do it's also superior because it is proclaimed and affirmed by the prophets the warnings, the teachings, exhortations by the prophets were based in the law of God they were expounding the law of God. Um, 
for the people of God. This is what God expects of you. This is what God, this is what you do when you're in relationship with God. This is what it means to be God's covenant people. Like Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, this is what it means to be kingdom people. You're poor in spirit. Okay? Humble people. Um, He's connecting and unpacking His kingdom as that which was established in the Old Testament. All the prophets claim to give forth the very word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Hebrews 1, 1 through uh, 2a says, Long ago and many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The Scriptures are also superior because they are accomplished by Christ. Jesus says here that He came to fulfill, not to abolish. So we need to think about abolish first. What does that mean? Well, it means to destroy. To devastate. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to ruin the law. I didn't come to destroy the law, eliminate the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, what does it mean to fulfill the law? So, this view claims that Jesus completed what was incomplete. And by that, I mean some, some view the law as the outline. Think of a coloring book. Now, if you've got kids, grandkids, you know how this works, right? Coloring book, you turn in the coloring book, you've got what? You've got black printed outline of some figure, you know? And what do kids do? They take crayons and they begin to fill it in and color it, right? Bring all this completion to it. Some people believe that's what Jesus was saying when he said, I came to fulfill the law. But what that does is make the law incomplete, insufficient, lacking in something. And that's not a good definition. That's not, that's not what the law in the Old Testament uh, represents. So it does not mean to fill out, but it means to fill up. It does not mean to add to in order to complete, but it completes what's already present. It validates what's already there. It proves what's already there. Jesus did not add any basic new teaching, but rather He clarified God's original meaning. Make sense? So you have all these animal sacrifices going on in the Old Testament you have this idea, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But Jesus didn't come to add to that. Jesus came to perfectly finish that, to be the fulfillment of that. All this was going on over here, and God was, God was allowing forgiveness based upon a future promise that Christ was coming. So he's honoring the animal sacrifices as a way of tethering to what was going to happen in the future, pointing forward to what was happening in the future that Christ himself would fulfill. Didn't make it any less complete over here. Just meant that it was pointing toward what he was going to do perfectly and finally, once and for all, Hebrews says. In truth, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by being its fulfillment. Everything in the Old Testament, I said, points forward to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament finds its fullest and most complete meaning in Christ. He did not simply teach it fully and exemplify it fully. He was it fully. He was it fully. Logos. He is the Logos. The Word of God. He didn't simply come to teach righteousness and to model it. He came as divine righteousness. 
You know, people will say sometimes that Jesus came to show us how to live better. Well, we can learn how to live better by looking at his life and emulating his life, but that's not why he came. He came in order to make us righteous. You know, doing better is not enough. But being righteous is what's required, and the only way we could do that is in him. We couldn't do it. Y'all are looking at me like, all right, go on already. Let's see. He fulfilled the moral law by his perfect righteousness. He met every standard and lived up to God's requirement perfectly. So how does it work for us? We talked about the Sabbath keeping. Okay, I'm going to move through that. Try not to be repetitive here. Um... Because Christ fulfilled all righteousness and became our righteousness, the Sabbath keeping ended. When Christ came, when Christ died on the cross, Sabbath keeping ended as such. We now possess the reality and no longer need the symbol. We have holiness in us by virtue of the Spirit of God living in us. So we don't need this symbol that people were pointing to and leaning on we have the real thing. Does that make sense? So it's okay to mow the grass. I didn't say that. <laughs> it's just bad luck. <laughs> oh, now look what you've done. Now we're... <laughs> I mean, I think that that's something that we have to think about. God says that man, the Sabbath was not, that man was not made for the Sabbath to serve the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made to serve man. In today's current situation in grace, we no longer observe the Sabbath. We worship Christ on the first day of the week in commemoration of when the resurrection occurred. But if you look at the early church, what did they do? They worshiped every day. It says they gathered together every day for worship and and to observe the Lord's Supper. They were doing it every day. Some point in time, they finally agreed that they would do it on the first day of the week together. Uh, and so that's that's become kind of the tradition, kind of the normal practice. But is that the only day that you can worship? Is that the day we must worship? That's the question. You know, are we Sabbath keepers? Or are we Sabbath observers? You know, do we take the Sabbath? God made the Sabbath for our rest and to be able to withdraw from the normal things in life and to focus our attention. Now, when you, if you think that's the purpose, think how far we have digressed from that in our culture. What is that? What's the, what's the first day of the week become in our culture today? I mean, you know, I'm on my way home from church. Well, I'll, I'll do this Please don't be offended because I know nothing of what any of y'all do on a Sunday other than <laughs> see you at church, okay? But as I'm coming to church on Sunday morning, I may meet 50 or 60 people on bicycles, you know, out for, they may be in a race, they may just be riding for fun. And I don't know, they may be going home because I come early and, and get ready and going to church at 11 o'clock. Maybe. Um, I also see people out, you know, with their landscaping business, Sam, and they're cutting grass and they're it's a normal normal work day. I get behind vans where they're painters and they're they're working. It's just a normal work day. It's not different. Um, so there's no there's no internal connection to
to a holy God, is there? Or at least that's the evidence that we have. But we come and we might quibble and say, well, you know, we come to church and then we go to a restaurant and eat lunch and we're making other people work to serve us on the Lord's Day. Well, okay. That's a fair discussion. You know, I'm not judging jury. I'm just saying this is where we are. I grew up in a town years ago where everything was closed on Sunday. You know, everything was closed on Sunday. Nothing was open. So it was easy. So you can consider our Sabbath keeping was legislated. <laughs> it was a cultural legislation. Everybody did it because it was just what we did, you know. I, th I think it was a better way to live, but I don't know that it, you know, that it, um, it was done always for the right reasons, obviously. But today, we've gotten so far away from it, it doesn't even cross our minds, does it? We start out by justifying, well, people who are in the health profession, we need them working at the hospitals and care facilities in case we need them that day. Or, you know, something else bad happens and we need those people doing their jobs on that day. So we're making some exceptions for those things, right? And then before we know it, then we're down to, well, hey, it's, I can get a head start on this week because I've got a busy week coming up. I'm going to the office today and get some things done so I'll have a better week. I can be more like Jesus this week if I get ahead of things. Maybe that's fine. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that the shift in mentality there is what we need to be looking at because that's the point of it. What's the mentality? Who is that day of rest for? The day of rest is for us. It's for us to be able to rest, okay? But not out of a sense of obligation because we have to. That's not even rest, is it? That's bondage. But to rest because God's given us this as a gift and to use it as an opportunity to worship Him and honor Him because He's given us. You know, this is the way He created. He set this, he set this schedule up when He made creation. Work six days and rest on the seventh, right? All right, enough of that. That was just an illustration. You can do with it whatever you want or throw any of it out you want. Um, any questions about any of that or anything to this point? I feel like we've been all over the map. Uh, food laws. Food laws were fulfilled in Christ. Now, I know we, you know, we don't practice, you practice any dietary food laws? I mean, you know, if you've been to Israel, I've been to Israel and those people practice food laws, you know. You go into a restaurant, you got to be careful where you, what section of the restaurant you eat on, particularly on the Sabbath. Uh, in fact, you're not going to eat much on the Sabbath. If you're depending upon going somewhere like that, you better have some food in your room, man, you James. <laughs> um, you know, because everything shuts down. When, when the Sabbath hits at uh, the appearance of three stars on Friday, everything shuts down and it stays that way till three stars appear at the end of the Sabbath. Uh, and it's eerie. If you're an American, a Westerner, and you go in that country for 24 hours, it's just creepy how how still and quiet everything is. It's like everybody's gone. It's like everybody's gone. You know, it's like you go home, you're used to having company in your house, and you go home and you're by yourself, and you look around and you go, wow, this just feels awkward now. And we're used to people wall to wall constantly going and going and going. And, you know, you walk out on the street there on Friday night at, you know, 8 o'clock after the sun's gone down, and you think, what happened to everybody? The rapture happened already? I mean, everybody's gone. I'm left behind. And don't take that as inferring anything. 
Um, there may have been dietary advantages in the Old Testament for prohibiting certain foods. And honestly, I thought basically, uh, I've made the case that that's a lot of what those were. God was protecting them, you know, keeping them from eating food that was vulnerable to decay and, and uh, uh, causing them harm more quicker than others. But basically the food laws were to teach the people, it was conceptual, it was to teach the people the difference between clean and unclean. So they had to get used to learning. There were certain things that were clean, things that God had given and were, were honoring to God, and there were things that weren't, at least in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus has fulfilled that. We don't, we don't do that anymore, right? We continue to live morally, not to get God's approval. We have fulfilled the moral law through Christ. Now He resides in us and through uh, and through us, and we live morally as a fruit of all that He has done. Okay, we got three more here, but we don't have time to uh, unpack them tonight. So I'm going to stop there and, again, give you a chance for any question, discussion, and... Jerry is talking about the, uh, having something to eat here in the South. Uh, it was weird... Pushing but on the elevator was considered work. Yeah. So they rigged the elevators to stop on every floor. So if you, you were did in have to do that. Yeah, that's right. Ten floors, it stopped on all ten. Uh, wow. And and if you had, um, um, you know, we discovered too that there were, and we're talking about Orthodox Jews here, that would show up at the hotel. <clears throat> late on Friday evening and actually check in and spend the next 24 hours at the hotel. And they would, they would have their uh, Passover meal observance um, together. Um, I mean, we were in, uh, I've been in a couple of the restaurant areas there where you'd have them at different tables and they would be uh, taking, taking their, uh, their Passover meal together. So it's, uh, it's, but you can see how it's so regimented and ritualistic and you know we we don't we're not controlled by that we're not I mean, Christ has fulfilled all those things God gave all of those kind of things as a way of showing us that we can't do it in our strength you know there's always something else left to do or something left undone uh, that only in Christ can we do that Jesus believed in the superiority of Scripture. He believed that His authority and the Scripture's authority were the same. He was always quoting from the Old Testament. Always. In fact, when He was in the wilderness being tested by Satan, how did He respond? He quoted Scripture. So He's convinced that the Scripture's authority is sufficient uh, for what He's doing. So it's important. It's important for us to know what we believe about the Bible. It's important for you to know what you believe about the Bible. It's important for you to know what your church believes about the Bible. It's also important for you to know what Jesus believed about the Bible. And that's one of the reasons I adhere to it so fiercely is because I see that he did. Okay. Last shot. Yes, sir. I could feel that question coming. Yeah. <laughs>
so because they don't believe in Christ, they don't recognize him as Messiah. They're, they, feel, they feel they're still under the law. How do they um, reconcile all this stuff, Jerry? They, they don't sacrifice? They don't, how do they reconcile all this? Well, they, they explain away that the, that the destruction of the temple uh, has suspended the sacrificial activity. And they would tell you they're looking for the day when they can renew those things. But right now, when you've got a mosque sitting on the Temple Mount, you know that you can't go out and just kick, fire back up the sacrifices again. And getting and gathering all that stuff. So, yeah, they, they're not, and they don't know. I mean, they would probably say, we don't know what the future's going to look like. You know, we don't know what to expect with Messiah when he comes. But they do know, or they do think they know, that Jesus is not him. Because they didn't expect a suffering, dying, sacrificial Messiah. They expect a leader. They expect somebody to come and emancipate them from the oppression that they've experienced for they years. Uh, well, they, yeah, they know he's going to be the son of God. Now, whether they would put him in the same category that we would, and we say that he's fully divine as if not human, and yet fully human is not divine, they probably would push back on that and say, no, he's, uh, they would consider you know, all men to be sons of God. Um, so they would look at him more as they would Moses or Abraham, continuing that line, David, I think. Not an expert. No, I'm really not. <laughs> an expert, you know, is somebody who's just come to the realization that he's never going to know everything. <laughs> okay, we'll do it again next week.